By the way, a long time ago, I was offered the international vice presidency of the uh, National Student Association, not knowing at the time that it was a CIA front and I was being prepared for bigger and better things in the CIA. Aha! Well, this aha moment, for them at least, the One Nation, happened after the health care overhaul passed in the spring. Liberal groups, which focus their collective strength to push the bill against heavy resistance, now feel relevant and, and effective for, for, for being, you know, in front for the first time in a long time. And they did a good job, by the way. There really was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of good work done. Otherwise, those bozos in Congress would never have come through. The health care coalition... Composed of civil rights groups, student activists, and labor leaders liked the winning feeling. In many ways, says this is a quote, the bitter fight for health care reform has painfully highlighted what that we must go back to the grassroots organizing that won us the election in the first place, said George Gershom, president of uh, 1199 SEIU United Healthcare Workers East. We must reassert our strength as the social movement that ushered Obama into office. Coalition's first goal is to plan a march to demonstrate to Congress that these agenda items have support across multiple demographics. Boy, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Jealous said. The demonstration to be held October 2nd will center on pressing for more government spending on job creation. The effort has a historical parallel in a story that Obama has told on the campaign trail, a story I'm familiar with as a student of FDR. According to the story, when labor organizer and civil rights leader A. Philip Randolph met with President Franklin Roosevelt to press his issues, most of which were civil rights issues at the time, they were, you know, incipient civil rights issues, Roosevelt told Randolph he agreed with him, but that Randolph should go out and make me do it. So I guess one nation is just going to go out and make them do it. Well, you just do that. You know, sometimes the New York Times obituaries, which (laughs) being an elderly gentleman as I am, I always read, hoping not to find any of my friends. Or yourself in it. Or myself. I found myself in the New York Times obituaries. Oh, boy. But on July 13th, the whole page of the obituary, two very famous people in in kind of our world, Harvey Pekar, the uh, American Splendor guy, Mm -hmm. died at 70. Right. And... Tuli Kupferberg, 86, the great bohemian, one of the founders of the FUGS. He did find it. He, 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 he found He was them. the guy. And, you know, I had to go to my record library where I pulled out the FUGS, the original two albums. And here's Ed Sanders and Tuli and Ken Weaver and the rest of the guys singing Kill for Peace. <laughs> group Grope, Frenzy, Dirty Old Man, and uh, uh, and those wonderful William Blake things that Sanders did. Supergirl and Seize the Day and Boobs a Lot. Those were great records, man. We couldn't play any of them on the radio. Well, I did. Remember what happened to me? I played Johnny Pissoff on KMET in, in Los Angeles, dedicated it to the FCC, and got fired. One of my many firings from radio. So I have to thank two for that, you want to tell us a little bit about? Well, this man? He, he was uh, he's he was eighty six, as I said, and uh, he'd been in poor health for quite a while. Uh, he was a guy who who uh, was always a bohemian in New York. He got into New York. As a matter of fact, his whole story is told in a wonderful book called "The Beats: A Graphic History," which the text of which is written by 
Harvey Picar. Oh, really? So I suggest taking a look at at that if people want to know any more. The uh, the 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 Fugs. Um, First album was released in 1965. Uh, Cooperberg was the, like uh, their their harlequin, their clown. Their you know, this guy had been around on the streets of Greenwich for Greenwich Village for so long, and when I met and interviewed him, he was just he was a just a great figure, almost because he was so much older than I was. You know, like a legend, like a legendary guy. Yeah. So um, so yeah yeah, I'll read a poem of his uh, at the end of the show today. But Harvey. Now, you- Harvey Picar, believe it or not, graduated like myself from Shaker Heights High School in 1957. Yeah, really, Harvey. Wow. He was he was something then. And the thing that's amazing about Harvey, not only did he stay in Cleveland, he went blue collar from the get-go. He had a job in, you know, just a, a file clerk in the cancer ward and stayed there the whole time and developed this extraordinary career as an underground uh, uh textural artist you know yeah writer. he wasn't the cartoonist no, he, he had he, he, he wrote the libretto yeah yeah and yeah. then r crumb came in or another artist came in and did the pictures yeah well here's the, here's my story with r crumb and and, and harvey mm-hmm. is that um when i was in cleveland one of the jobs i had was at american greeting cards which is a huge greeting card company and they'd started this kind of like offshoot called a hi-hat which was their funny cards, mm-hmm. right? And I was working there and, you know, team around the table making up these funny cards. And uh, I'd been there like a week or so, already turned out a really dandy card. I remember <laughs> it said, uh, showed a guy in a graduation gown and said, uh, you're graduating, you're prepared for the future, your eyes are bright, your your jaw is firm, you open up and your fly is open. You know, yeah, great, <laughs> huh? But so a lot. So uh, uh-huh. then about a week in, two weeks in, they come give me this piece of paper from Human Resources to sign. And at the bottom of the employment, for me, I have to sign a loyalty oath. I am not now, never have been a member of the United States, anything over above Lyle and overthrow the United States government, et cetera, et cetera. I yeah. said, no, I won't do this. So they, they put pressure on me to do it. And the next day I showed up, or two days later, I showed up in, in an army helmet and a fake rifle. And I, uh, and I went around the room guarding the room against communists. I was out. You were guarding. And you know who took my, took my place? R. Crumb. Yeah, yeah, he was, ne- <laughs> he was next in line. So anyway, with Harvey. You know, a famous curmudgeon, right? So I went back for my 50th. Uh, at Shaker Heights High School, and I called him ahead of time from here because I'd kept in contact with him. I said, Harvey, you're going to be at the uh, reunion. Why did I go to the reunion? I said, well, you know, okay, well, let me come by. I'll say hello. Why do I want to see you? I said, okay, that's it, Harvey. I said, you can do the whole curmudgeon thing for the rest of the world. You can make a fortune being a curmudgeon. I don't care. Maybe your girlfriend likes it in bed. It's me, Peter Bergman. Stop it. Okay, come on over. So I went over. We spent some time. His lovely wife, who really was kind of like making his world for him, right? Mm-hmm. And we went and talked. And he's just one of the sweetest people in the world. And to my mind, one of the most unusual, dedicated, and pure artists we've ever had. Um, well, there's two of them together, and they're on the same bus. Yes, they are. And they are going to beat heaven. Oh, my home. Yeah, they beat the rap, and now they're going to beat heaven. Yeah, the Alpha and the Omega, we're at the Omega, the end of the show, and we're going to uh, do something special because we did an obit on Tuli Kupferberg, and Dave, you're going to read one of his poems for I us. I am. This is from, I just got a copy of The Beat Scene, which I lost a long time ago. This is a classic from 1960, and it's got poems by everybody who was happening back then, including Tuli, and here, just a bit of Greenwich Village of my dreams to go out on. Oh, the times they were. A rose in a stone, 
chariots on the West Side Highway, blues in the Soviet Union, onions in Times Square, a Japanese in Chinatown, a soup sandwich, a Hudson terraplane, chess in a Catskill bungalow, awnings in Atlanta, Lewison Stadium in the blackout, Brooklyn beneath the East River, the waves pass over, the battery in startling sunlight, Kleins in Orbach, Love on the Dole, Roosevelt not elected, Hoover under the Third Avenue L, Joe Gould kissing Maxwell Bodenheim and puffing on his pipe, Edna Malay feeling Edmund Wilson, Charlie Parker and Ted Jones talking in Sheridan Square Park, and it's cold, man, the Cedar Street bar with cedars in it, and autos crashing against the cedars, the Chase Manhattan Bank closed down for repairs to open as the new Waldorf cafeteria, Lionel Trilling kissing Allen Ginsberg after great reading in the gaslight, the limelight changes its name to the electric light and features Charlie Chaplin as a swinging waiter, Edgar Allan Poe becoming the dentist in the Waverly Dispensary and giving everyone free nitrous oxide high. Yeah. Thank you, Tuli. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Rest in Greenwich Village in peace. Radio Free Oz. Here's the Oz team. I'm your host, Peter Bergman, co-host David Osmond. Scott Wildwell, he does all that super media for us. Bill McIntyre produces it. Dave Maloney records it. Chaz Glass keeps the numbers. Tom Gedwillow makes the website happen. Phil Fountain, well, he's the Oz Design Group. He's real pretty. And John Cummins, he's our advisor. Tomorrow, yes, tomorrow.